welcome to Don't You Lie to Me. Okay, let's go. Don't you lie to me. I'm gonna have another drink. Don't you lie to me. Explain that to the kids. Don't you lie to me. Okay, let's hear that story. Let's start interviewing. Hey everybody, welcome to the first episode of Don't You Lie to Me. I'm your host, Jeff Bell. I'm here along with our producer, Warren Hicks. And this is going to be our intro episode. We're going to tell you a little bit about the podcast and maybe you get a chance to learn a little bit about us, which you would probably rather quickly forget. Again, I'm Jeff Bell. I'm a visual artist. I also work in the museum world. I work at 21C in Durham, North Carolina. Warren is an extraordinary artist. No. Uh, He works in a lot of different mediums. And he works on the side of the road. Why, thank you, Jeff. So um, we've been working on this for a little while now and, and trying to get our feet under us and figure out how this whole thing is going to work. Because you brought this, this idea up. It's been a year. Yeah, we've been th- talking about this for a while. And our first recording was six months ago. Has it been that with long? With Carrie. It's been that long. Whoa. So it's taken time for it to come to fruition, but uh, now we have four interviews under our hat and we're ready to launch this baby. Yeah, we're trying to kind of, uh, as we go along, figure out exactly what this is going to look like or sound like in this case. Um, the length of time, the, how the interviews go. I think you'll see more sort of individual segments pop up as we get going down the road. But really just sort of figuring out the technology and the format. Uh, I think it'd be fun to just talk about our expectations, what we, what we want to do with this, um, this format. I think when we look around, there's uh, not enough avenues to find out about artwork, particularly in North Carolina and locally here in the Triangle I think we want to um, be another way for people to, to get to know more about the artists they see around them and the, um, the venues that they attend. So we'll be talking to um, visual artists as well as uh, people who work in galleries and museums to find out about how uh, the exhibitions you look at uh, come to pass. Okay, so in this first episode, we're going to um, hear a few clips from our upcoming episodes. Uh, The first is going to be with the amazing Carrie Alter. But before we uh, get to that clip, I'd like to say thank you to the Visual Art Exchange. Uh, Through their Lighter Fluid Award program, uh, we won a grant, and we're very excited uh, that that's helping to fund our um, podcast. If you're interested in being a sponsor for Don't You Lie to Me, you can email us at dyltmnc at g gmail.com. If you'd like to find out more, please go to our website, which is don'tyoulietome.com, and you can find links to the guests we have, images of their artwork, and you can also follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Our Twitter feed is at dyltmnc. Um. So what what are we talking about again? <laughs> so we're going to introduce individual clips. In this first clip, we're going to hear from Carrie Alter. She is a, um, an amazing artist here in the area, and she um, now teaches at the North Carolina School of Science and Math. Were you into art when you were a kid? I, I started doing art when I was, well, I think way before I was 12, but I started taking it seriously when I was 12. Now that's pretty early to be serious about something. Yeah. You know, so were you drawing or painting? Well, or? I was um, a graffiti artist, and I was in a graffiti gang. That's when I started skateboarding <laughs> and um, learned how to spray paint and would do graffiti all over Miami. And I was in two different graffiti gangs. 
um, which I don't know if it's even okay now to say the names of the... Oh, I'm sure it is. <laughs> <laughs> well, AI was Artists Incorporated, and then there was MAC, which was Midnight Artist Crew. And um, they both had different members, but I was the only female member in both of the groups. And so how does that work? You we go- would um, do lots of sketches, uh, and usually using design markers. Remember those? Yeah, sure. They still sell them. So we would have design markers, and we'd do lots of sketches, and we would have our names tagged everywhere. And then once we all agreed on one of the um, design sketches, then we would go and spray paint it. So it was really uh, highly organized. Oh, yeah. All gangs are highly organized. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so uh, is anything like is anything about that still relevant to what you do now? I think it is because I think in graffiti, just like most art forms, uh, drawing is the most important part. And in graffiti especially, there's a heavy reliance on line weight and line. And I think that my paintings are more of drawings than they are paintings, even when they're very painterly and full of texture, I feel like I still include a lot of line just because that was my first love. Right. Graffiti. So, and I know that you also uh, were into music at a point, right? Before mm-hmm. that? Well, music is what got me into graffiti. And how, how, it, yeah. how did that uh, happen? How did that transition happen? Well, I was a country music singer. And, you know, so it makes sense that I would go into graffiti. Sure, of course. (laughs) (laughs) So so um, my mom had four babies um, all within five years, and I'm the oldest. So when I was five, my little sister was born, the fourth girl. We're all girls. So my mom and dad got us a singing teacher so that they would have more time since there were so many of us, and Katerina was her name. She started coming over when I was five and teaching me piano and singing and guitar, and her mom was also a performer, but um, mostly Spanish dance. So we started going on tour as the altar girls. By the time I was 10, my little sister was five, and we all sang together and traveled I thought for sure I'd be a country music singer, and we even tried out for Star Search. That was my my whole dream in life was to be a country music singer. Um, and shortly after that, she was um, she was tragically murdered. And once I found out, I went mute for a while in school. And it was at that point that I started drawing because I wasn't speaking. And the graffiti gangs noticed me drawing, so they took right. me in like their family. Um, and I've been drawing ever since. So is music, was that like the end of music for you? It was for a while. Anyway, I was refused to go into it, but I married a musician. Right. And when I moved to Chapel Hill for grad school, I played with the band Blue Green Gods for one year. Yeah. So uh, when you changed, when you stopped talking, when you uh, started drawing, was, did you, did that... F- fulfill a similar need or was that something totally different yeah it was the same thing I feel like I just found a different way to sing and that's something Katerina always taught me was that um it's it's all about passion and one passion can easily translate into another passion as long as you're passionate about that thing and and music and art you know have so much to do with one another so it was an easy transition 
from one to another. And what about your sisters? How did that how did that impact them? Well, I don't think they ever really liked music. They were just doing it because it was, you know, we had lessons. They never felt what I felt on stage. So um, they didn't go into the arts. So they went in a totally different direction. Yeah. And when, uh, I know you went to school for uh, art, right? Mm-hmm. And did you have a sense of what you wanted to do at that time in art? Or was it just you knew that there was something out there that you wanted to do? Well, I, I played tennis in high school, and I didn't want to go to college at all. I just wanted to be. And I, I hated high school so much that um, I really couldn't imagine going to another college, like a college being an extension of a high school. But while I was playing tennis, this um, tennis coach guy came to our school or a, what are they a recruiter recruiter right. yeah so he offered me a scholarship to Brevard College which is in North Carolina sure. and um and I hadn't applied to anywhere else and I thought well I guess if I could play tennis it would be worth going so I went to Brevard played tennis and took art classes um and I just I, I can't tell you what Brevard did for me. It was It's amazing. That college was amazing. And those two years changed my whole life. I ended up getting four degrees and staying in college after I left Brevard, which was only a two-year college. I went to Ringling School of Art right. and um, only applied with my graffiti. So I was surprised I got in, wow. but, um, but that was great. So when you were at Brevard, you were making art. Mm -hmm. I was basically doing graffiti on canvas, but, you know, taking right. art classes, but I got my associate's degree in English and creative writing. And that's up in the mountains. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. So after that, how was there a period of time before moving to Chapel Hill? Or was that, I know you went to Ringling. Mm -hmm. After Ringling, did you go straight to Chapel Hill or what was that about? Well, I went to Ringling for two years and then I went to Skidmore College for one year um, and I'm fortunate enough to have a father that was willing to pay for my education if he believed in what I was being educated in. But after I dyed my hair green at Ringling, he was concerned um, that I was doing drugs. Um, and then I did get kicked out of the dorms because my boyfriend at the time was selling marijuana. So, <laughs> so <laughs> do we need to stop? Warren so, was just cheering. <laughs> I, had, I had 24 hours to get out of the dorms. And, um, of course, my father was worried with reason. So um, I had applied to Skidmore College the year before, and he had my application reprocessed. And um, my choice was stay at Ringling and pay for it myself, uh, which was very expensive as right. a private school, or go to Skidmore, get a degree from a quote-unquote regular college, as he put it, um, and he would be more than happy to pay for me to get my degree at Ringling. So I went to Skidmore for a year, but I, I really didn't enjoy my time there. So I did my research, and I found that if I went to University of Tampa, I could take 22 credits in one like semester or something. I like overloaded <laughs> and a summer. Right. It was a semester and a summer and get my degree in art history. And that would be a degree from a quote unquote regular college. So I transferred to University of Tampa, which was only an hour away from Ringling. So I could hang out with my Ringling friends, although I didn't have much time with all my classes, right. got my degree and went back to Ringling and got my other degree at Ringling. So I have this like uh, very crazy view or uh, picture of what Ringling is. It's connected to Ringling Brothers initially, right? 
Is that right? <laughs> I'm trying to remember the history because I used to be so well versed in that. And I know it has to do that one of the founders was one of the Ringling Brothers. Right. But I don't remember much more past that. So you're not like going in a circus tent. You're you're <laughs> No, there actually is a clown school though, right, right next door. And so we we knew a lot of the people who were going to the clown school. And New College is um, also pretty much right next door. So a lot of the great parties were at New College, which is like a gifted college for um, which one of the universities in Florida, University of Florida maybe or South, I don't know. One of the big Florida schools, it's like the gifted um, college, which I should know because I think one of my um, friends went there. So so by the time you left um, mm -hmm. Ringling, were you doing more traditional painting or what did that look oh, like? Oh, yeah. Ringling is a very traditional school. So it was my first experience with the nude model yeah. and learning the foundations. It was um, it was like everything anybody who's not been to art school would imagine a traditional art school being. Right. We had to learn to draw realistically before we were allowed to go away from realism, like uh, learn anatomy, learn the body inside out, spend multiple hours drawing the figure, um, proportions, perspective, all of the foundations. But by your junior and senior year, you had freedom. So it was like two concentrated years of this hardcore traditional foundation and then two years of freedom. What's your background in museums? Um, well, I um, I started working in museums as an intern when I was in undergrad. I went to University of North Carolina at Wilmington, and I worked at what at that time was called St. John's. It's now the Cameron Museum of Art, and I just did an internship and really loved working in the museum. There was a, a museum on campus at that time called the Museum of World Cultures, and that's where I learned a lot about sort of the day-to-day -day workings of a museum. Uh, after school, I started working at what is now the Nasher Museum of Art at the time it was the Duke University Museum of Art. I was in their collections management department. And then I went back to graduate school. That was at UNC Greensboro. That was for studio art. And after that time, I did a lot of freelance work at museums. And I ultimately became the um, gallery and exhibitions manager at Cam Raleigh. Uh, after that, I moved over to 21C in Durham. What's your job at 21C Hotels? Uh, my title is museum manager, so I do a lot of different things over there. I help get ready to install new exhibitions. I um, lead tours and do public programming and also staff training. And then just the sort of everyday general uh, upkeep and, and care of the artwork. Oh, that was so good. So tell us about your work. My work? Yeah. Oh, sure. Why not? Um, no. What are you currently working on? I'm currently working on this podcast. So Warren Hicks is, a, as I mentioned, a visual artist. He lives in Chapel Hill, but he works in Durham, North Carolina. He has a studio at Golden Belt. If you find yourself wandering along on third Fridays, I highly recommend you stop by his studio and ask him for some free bourbon. Uh, he will make that available to you. But he has amazing artwork. You get to check it out in person there uh, and also on his website. What's your website, Warren? It is warrenhicks.com. And if anybody cares enough, my website is jeff-bell.com. I make uh, sculptures. I live in Smithfield and I work in Durham. Here's a short clip from our interview with Heather Gordon. She's a tremendous artist here in Durham, North Carolina. And so we're going to get a chance to talk to her in a full-length episode coming up. But this is just a little taste of our talk with Heather. Heather. <laughs> 
I'm always interested in how people get into visual arts, just the sort of how you got to where you are now. Um, and uh, I, I'm always sort of interested in particular your work. I, I, I don't want to say it's non representational because in my mind it is it represents these things it's abstract yeah, it's or, representational art right I mean how do you how do you talk about your work I mean would, would you even just how would you even describe that if you had to put it in a, um, a well category? if I'm using data which is facts right and I'm putting them in relationship putting those pieces of data in relationship to each other in a visual way it's essentially like writing a sentence or a paragraph or a chapter or making a song or, I mean, those things, we think of those things as abstract or realist and representational, but right. in different ways. So it's a kind of a, it's a, it's a construct that we have when we apply it to visual arts. What does representational mean? Um, right. Well, if it's all fact driven and driven by an algorithm, isn't that not representational in the most bare bones, basic, purest sense? That, I mean, to me it is. I can't think of any way. I think so too, and, that, yeah. and that's what I was sort of getting at. I mean, when you, when you first look at, at uh, your work, it looks sort of geometric or, or um, shapes and linear, and I think historically we see those things, and we, we uh, or I think it's very easy to think of them as uh, living out there somewhere, that they're not based on uh, these things when we know that they are. And I think in your work, um, it, that you become aware and, and knowing where those forms and shapes and, and the constructs, as you said, where they come from is really based on these very real things. Um, but did your work start out like that? How did you get to No, the point? my God, no. Right, I mean, I can't, no. I, that, that's... I started I, at, the, at the, what representational is to most people. Right, That's right. where I started. Right. Going to the National Gallery with my parents and uh, really uh, taking these excursions into a closet that my father had in the basement. Or was it in a side part of the house? I mean, it changed because we moved so much. Which closet he put his paint box in and uh, a few canvases that he'd worked on. Oh, so your dad made artwork. Yeah, but I never actually saw him doing it. He did it before I came around. But then he never got rid of the stuff. He didn't get rid of the gear. Wow. Um, kind of like, you know, a lot of people do that when kids, kids come around. You know, right. they put away their paints so they quit writing or they stop playing guitar. But they don't get rid of the stuff. Right. Yeah. So you anyway, were... so I used, to, I used to steal into the closet to smell the box and open it up. And then um, I remember being amazed by uh, these Franz Hall's paintings and uh, the lushness of the paint and thinking about how my father had done it on his canvases because you could see that he was learning and that this was a, there, was a, there was a discernible difference between the way these two men painted. Right. But I loved the paintings equally, so I was mesmerized by that early on. And then a friend of mine got into it after school, and so I just went along you know, like going to drawing class. I think I was eight, and then I just never stopped. That's pretty, pretty early, eight. Yeah. I think. I mean, yeah. to I, I I guess everyone draws, you know, as a kid. I mean, you're sort of required to, but to, to, to really be thinking later. about it. Maybe it was later. I get kind of mushy about the early years. It was early, though, God. Yeah. I can't remember when. So. 
So, so when you get to like high school and you go to college, oh yeah, what, you're you're focusing on art. Is that correct? Uh, oh no, no, no. I'm not actually aware that uh, I'm any different from anybody else in that sense. Right. Like I just figure everybody's into it. Right. And where did you grow up? <laughs> um, all over, because we I was on a military base a lot of my life. And then we moved every four years, mm -hmm. uh, except for my father did get stationed twice at the Pentagon, back to back, which was great until we moved my senior year of high school. That was not so great. Yeah, that's but, not cool. Yeah, it's a long time though in D.C., which is nice. Right. I was born in Germany and lived in lots of places. So Alaska, up in Fairbanks, I went up there for the summer and worked when my parents were stationed there. And um, Salt Lake City, outside of that, Ogden, Utah, and Panama City, Florida. Uh, oh, God, there's a lot. Uh, Dayton, Ohio. That's, the, that's all over. Yeah, and then I kept doing it myself. I mean, like, I'm a totally nomadic person. Every yeah. four years, I get the itch. So I left school and went to college when I was 17, and then moved every four years. But I was never aware that I was into art really when, and when I mean, did the, when I did that happen really, um i think maybe there's like that's like peeling an onion yeah like first there's this awareness that i tended to like this a lot more than other people did like some people don't even they don't even know they've never even been to a museum much less even know what like they're not just just not into it um so i noticed that difference and i noticed i was doing it in my own t spare time you know, like right. kids draw and doodle and stuff. I would like pull out National Geographic books that my grandparents had given me for Christmas and try to make drawings of the pictures of people from different places in the world. And I was fascinated by that and just draw with a pencil, mm -hmm. you know, trying to make it look exactly the same as I'm seeing it. Right. Being very representational about things. Sure. Yeah. And so that, then what, what is the next phase? What Where does it go from there? When does it become like something you're really... You're doing. You're doing on a. Uh, oh, I had a total existential crisis. The first of many. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, let's see. I changed my major. I went. My undergraduate years. I had five years because I changed from um, pharmaceutical research, which is where what I was interested in, and going in that direction for sure. Changed it into uh, architecture quite briefly, and then into fine arts. Mm -hmm. And that was, I remember having a panic attack about it at three o'clock in the morning. I think it was like that. And I called my, I called home. I'm, like, I'm so sorry. I have to be an artist. I'm sorry. I'm going to be poor. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. And how did they respond? They started laughing. Mm -hmm. And my dad was like, God, it's about time. That's awesome. Yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah. I you know, ended up going to school for art and I was, my parents are so practical that, uh, but they, they were totally supportive. I was always shocked by it. I mean, I think they, they knew for a fact I'd never get a job, but they were like super supportive and it's always amazing when that happens, what that can do for you. Yeah. Um, so then you were, I mean, all if I had thought about the fact that my dad was still keeping his painting supplies right? all those years, I would have but as a kid, you know, that didn't even occur to me mm -hmm. that he still had such a love for something like that. Right. That's cool. Yeah. 
So then you're you're in school. You're making art. What does that look like? What what kind of art are you doing? Paintings? Uh, or? Well, it's undergraduate, so yeah. I'm doing whatever they tell me to Color do. Color studies. Pretty much. Oh yeah. my god. Oh my god. Yes. My uh, my undergraduate. Oh my god. Yes. We diagrammed paintings like crazy. Mm-hmm. We would look at different masters, and he would have us do these diagrammatic studies of them. Studies of the light, studies of the color, studies of, you know, uh, or paint this thing, but make it like eight inches square and use an entire tube of white paint, which made really thick paintings, but you could also scrape it off. Right. But you had to put it on. (laughs) So he was always coming up with stuff like that to kind of break your ideas about setting up a space or what color looked like or how hard was it to make those awesome paintings that you see in the museums. And and when you get done with school, do you feel like you have a sense of what you're doing, or are you still no, not just, at all. you just have a foundation, some level of understanding, maybe about the materials? Um, I think my last semester, I had a a small series of paintings that I did, that I had a sense that they were different. I remember feeling when I made them, that these were really different. It's is that? But a- I didn't know what that meant. I mean, I didn't know if that meant they were good or it, if this is really terrible and I shouldn't do it. I mean, I immediately wanted to put judgment on it, right? Is is that, <coughs> this feeling you got, is that an afterward, like, self-critiquing or is that in the making? Are you sensing that? In the, yeah, in the making of it. Yeah. You feel it, you just, it just felt different mm-hmm. in my body, making those paintings. Right. There was just a few of them. And uh, I remember uh, also having this repeated dream at that time about this landscape Kind of like a like then close encounters when the guy gets totally fixated on the shape of the mountain. Right. Yeah, that was happening to me. Oh man. About this small ridge of paintings, this small I mean, small ridge of of tiny mountains. I mean, not really hills because they were pointy and rocky. I didn't know where they were, but I kept seeing them in three dimensions. But of course, you know, I'm a painter, and hadn't occurred to me that I that was my own label. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Right. So I, what I was doing was carving them out of foam. So I was sculpting them, and then and then putting them in these setups with light on them, and you know, light, trying to match the light that I kept dreaming this repeated dream of, and then I would paint those scenes in different ways, diagram them out, like going through scraping paint off, really layering them over, making lots and lots and lots and lots of paintings, and that ended up being the work that I applied to grad school with. It was really fresh stuff really new hadn't had any really critiques on it or anything yeah and um got right in but the interesting part that makes this thing worth telling and listening to is that <laughs> the very like right at the end of that last semester when i was about to graduate this visiting professor came in from new mexico state university he was the current department head at the time and he looked at all the paintings i was making and he said oh the dona annas have you been there and I said, yes, please tell me, where is it? I've been there a thousand times in my head. Oh, where you, is it? But you and he said, actually... it's right outside of Las Cruces. He said, are you looking for a grad school? I'm like, yeah, I am. So I oh, went oh, there. Oh, man, that's crazy. Yeah. I, but you'd never been there. No. And it was a really tiny school at the time. Tiny school. I think there were maybe eight or ten of us in the, all of the visual arts. For grad for graduate school, wow. it was mostly an agriculture school. You know, I think that's changed now. It's been a good long time, but that was in the early '90s. But there were the Donianas, and I used to go out there and take my 
put all my gear in the back of my truck and drive out on this road. There was nothing else out there. And there were the Donia Annas in the same exact angle that I kept seeing. Oh, man, that's so crazy. So we used to go out there and I would paint and then, or groups of us would go out and watch um, shooting stars when they would come through because you could really see them and have campfires and cook hot dogs. You so know, that kind of thing. <clears throat> so it was meant to be in a way, you think? I mean, do well, you believe in sure such feels things? That, well, yeah, I do. I mean, I believe in anything sort of supernatural, but... Uh, you know, there's only one way to guarantee that you will never find magic in your life, and that's to just not believe in it. So I think uh, one of the things I really want to uh, see us do is make people aware of um, shows out there that they might want to check out or maybe just hear from us about our thoughts on those shows. I'm really excited about... Um, Coming up this fall, a show called Southern Accent over at the Nasher Museum. Uh, and also, I'm really excited about the move of the Carrick, which is taking place pretty much as we speak from downtown Durham out a little further out towards Golden Belt, where you live. It's a sweet neighborhood. It is. It's exciting that it's going to be, uh, all of that stuff will sort of come together. You've got Spectre Arts and the Carrick and Golden Belt. Ponysaurus is nearby. You've got a lot of things kind of going on down at that end of town, which is really neat to see. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> no, it, it's it's very exciting, and to see the art scene in Durham move east towards Golden Belt, which I've been at for eight years now, and to finally see more of the art life move in that direction and re-energize that part of downtown is is fantastic. There's just uh, so much going on in Durham uh, as far as the arts as well as the rest of the Triangle. And we're going to hit on uh, a lot of things in our area and even outside of our area as we move forward. If you'd like to find out more <laughs> about what's going on in Durham, please go to thirdfridaydurham.com. Third is the number three, R-D, fridaydurham.com. In this next segment, we're going to hear from Brad Johnson. He's the exhibition designer at the Nasher Museum of Art. <laughs> So I'm trying to think of, of funny things that happen. I, I don't want to make it sound like there's a lot of horseplay, but there is a lot of horseplay. But it's usually, it's not with any of the objects. I mean, you, you need to, you know, you need to laugh when you're not being serious so that you can maintain a level of not being tense because you don't want to be handling an object and be, be uptight about it. You want to be relaxed but at the same time, when you're handling that object, that's all you're doing. Right. And the other person on the other end, that's what they're doing. So there, I don't have a lot of good stories about object handling that are, that are funny. But <laughs> um, at one time we did, uh, when, when we moved the collection from the Nasher, from, the, from Duma to the Nasher, and you and I uh, were in charge of this move, as, as it seems like to me. Right. It seems like to me. <laughs> <laughs> so, so we had the idea we were going to pack the entire collection, and then we would move it over a two-week period of time. I think we were trying to fit this all in the schedule. The museum had closed early. I think we took some months to pack it uh, that's when Harvey Craig used to work with us, mm -hmm. and Alan and Harvey did the majority of the packing. Um, and then a lot of the objects were just going to be packed on the truck as were needed. Uh, the larger pieces, we didn't feel a need to crate them since they were only going 
a half a mile, maybe three quarters of a mile. And we hired, was it Allied Van Lines? I think so. I'm not sure how we hired them, but um, <laughs> we there was an older gentleman. And, of course, he, he knew about moving objects, but he didn't know about moving artwork. Right. And so it was it was us trying to work with him, and I think we gave him the nickname of Cowboy Bob, and I don't know if that's because he wore boots or had long sideburns. Um, and he had a helper with him. He didn't have much of a clue, but his name was Tumbleweed. <laughs> and between the two of them, and I think we had maybe five or six of us doing the move, we moved the entire collection in, in two weeks. From one museum to another, which was pretty amazing at the time, a lot of a lot of uh, pallet jacking going on. Yeah, I, I remember uh, Cowboy Bob and, and Tumbleweed as being. Uh, uh, they would have been tremendous character actors back in the day. <laughs> Both of them very different. But I remember at one point um, we had created these nicknames for them amongst ourselves, and at some point I was talking to Tumbleweed and I asked him where Cowboy Bob was. <laughs> as if that was his actual name and he didn't seem to know what i was talking about so. yeah, i don't even think his name was bob <laughs> i think bob went with cowboy but uh right. yeah that was a, a a tremendous experience i think we we ended up moving you know nearly ten thousand things uh if if that's uh even possible uh, over to the new building into storage so that was um and for me, an incredible experience. It's one of those things. I know you were involved when when they redid the Ackland, but it's a very rare thing to have experience of moving to a new building to to uh, go through all the sort of challenges and things involved with that. Um, it's pretty extraordinary, but uh, pretty amazing at the same time. Yeah, it was it was very exciting to to finally get to the new building. And it, 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 there's not a comparison in my mind between the old facility that Duma was in and the, the Nasher now. The, right. the building is tremendous. To have a building designed by an architect as a museum instead of a converted classroom is, is night and day. Right. And, and just the level of exhibitions and the things that, that are now going on, the, the, the number of staff persons, the professionalism, and, the, and it's just a... It's just an amazingly different um, setting now. Uh, I'm just always uh, sort of blown away by the exhibitions. I think uh, certainly part of that's due to Trevor, Trevor Schoonmacher when he was hired on. Really uh, an amazing um, vision and understanding of contemporary art and collecting and, and curating. And, and the level of shows has just been uh pretty exceptional i mean i know that for you working with that work it's got to be really exciting and you're frequently working with art from a living artist which is a different thing you you can um, work with them on specific works and ideas in, in certain cases which is a, a very different thing than just a sort of object that has been around for a long time and you don't have the input of that person that's created it which in a lot of cases is an advantage uh, but it is nice to work with an artist whose art you're showing. That does uh, remind me. I, I would like to say it, it has been. It's wonderful working with Trevor, um, who was the after Sarah. He was the first curator hired at the Nasher, and 
Um, since then, we've uh, added Marshall Price, and both of them are really wonderful to work with and sure. are great, great people to work with. I mean, that it makes all the difference in the world to work with someone who not only will they explain what their plan is or what they're thinking, but they will listen to you if you have an idea. And, they, and it goes for anybody on the staff. I mean, I, I think everyone is open to hearing others' ideas because you don't know where the next good idea is going to come from. It, it, doesn't, it doesn't reside all in one place. It reminds me that when we did install the Nasher, at the very beginning, we did have a little run-in with a living artist. If, if you remember this, uh, we had gotten a piece early on, and it was this is a contemporary piece, and I'm not going to mention the, 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 the piece or the, the artist, but the, the object was too large in the crate to make it up, up in our elevator, and our elevator is huge anyway. It's, it's about 10 by 12 feet, and one end of the crate, we figured out if one end of the crate would come off, the object would fit into the elevator which was no big deal. So we proceeded to take the end of the crate off and, and put the object in and take it up and then move it into our pavilion, waiting for the rest of the objects to arrive so that the entire show could be installed. Well, the artist was going to arrive later, and when they did and they saw that the end of the crate had been taken off, they absolutely completely lost it not even asking for an explanation at all, just the fact that they were not informed of it. And really, the, I was completely flabbergasted. The, the, the person just completely lost it, uh, you know, yelled at me. I thought, it, I thought the person yelled primarily at me. I, <laughs> I'm trying to remember this, uh, but I feel like I got the largest brunt of this uh, <laughs> explosion. But it was a... Um, it was a little bit of a lesson uh, f for me. I mean, I had certainly been in the museum for a world for a little while by then, but it, it, the the level of reaction was extraordinary and, in, in my opinion, unfounded. Um, but uh, it it get it, it sort of makes you aware that you're dealing with a lot of different individuals, and um, you have to sort of be prepared for. Uh, working when you work in a museum, you have to be prepared to deal with a lot of different people that do a lot of it, that are really in a lot of different capacities. You're you're dealing with curators, you're dealing with directors, you're dealing with artists, you're dealing with designers. Uh, a lot of people have their own opinions, and um, sometimes it's a balancing act. But yes, I remember that uh, somewhat non fondly. <laughs> yeah, I was. I thought you were going to say you you learn never to listen to me again. <laughs> Because well, no. I think I was the one who said to take the end of the crate off. Well, you were, but I wasn't going to throw you under the bus. But it, the 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 work was perfectly safe the way we we transported it. Um, I think that uh, the artist may not have understood that i'll just leave it at that hmm. i think you actually got an apology out of the whole thing i don't think i ever heard anything. I, I never got an apology no <laughs> <laughs> hey there warren who's our first sponsor well i think our lucky sponsor this week is the number two pencil it's number one why is exactly why ex <laughs> <laughs> Why is the what's the, the who's in the house? That's right, gang. 
Why exactly is the number one selling pencil cursed with being labeled number two? Find out the answer to that cliffhanger later in the show. Remember the number two pencil? It's number one. It has an eraser. So I'm going to plug my own stuff. In uh, September, I will open a show at Spectre Art. So I'm super excited about that. I got a lot of work to do, but I'm feverishly working away at it. If you'd like to check out their website, it is specterarts.org, run by the amazing Al Lang, who's a powerful force in our local arts community. Um, They have amazing shows and events, so please check them out. What's coming up at 21C that you're excited about, Jeff? We uh, are going to change out an exhibition in two galleries pretty soon, and we're going to install artwork by a local artist named Leah Sobsey. Uh, she grew up in Durham and Chapel Hill. She's a photographer. I hope people have seen her work before, but we'll see more of her work if they come by 21C. She also has a catalog um, that's been recently published by Daylight Books, and um, uh, she's a really interesting artist. She uh, does a lot of work documenting and photographing um, materials found in national park collections. So those might be birds, they may be Um, bones or artifacts really beautifully photographed Uh, and I think it's a nice tie-in because this is the 100th anniversary of the national park system so I'm excited that this is all sort of coming together at the same time. Finally here's a clip with us talking to Brandon Cordry. He works at the Visual Art Exchange in Raleigh and is also a visual artist in his own right. He makes uh, multimedia works, paintings, and sculptures. What did your work look like when you graduated from college? Has it changed dramatically since then? Yeah. um, So when I graduated, my senior show was very mixed media, um, but it was really obsessive. Um, uh, Scott Eagle, who's still a professor there, um, was somewhat influential on me. And so I was cutting out tiny little pieces of old, you know, um, secondhand books and and making these giant pieces of two-dimensional work with tiny little elements. And then I would spend hours cutting, hours gluing, and then like ball it up, ball up the piece and like run it over with my car or leave it out in the rain or power sand it with 80 grit sandpaper, wiping away just like hours of work. But it would create these interesting surfaces. And then I would continue to work on that and that would continue to evolve. So when I I left, my color palette was... um, much more earth tone ish Mm -hmm. than it is now um it was all the colors were fairly rich um in that earth tone sort of range and um a lot of the work was um figurative but with without the actual human figure being in there so like trees that were figurative things like that um and yeah, my work has changed a lot. I think I, I left undergrad and I was like, oh my God, screw that. Like so much time um, wasted. Um, and then um, and then I moved to Raleigh right afterwards and I decided, screw that. I'm going to do drawing for a while. And I did. And then I decided I was going to do very like color field painting. Um, and so it was like blocks of color sort of think like, really simplified paint by numbers um and that made me work in 
more colors than I was before. Um, so I had a, a show, I should give them a shout out at Gallery A, which is actually a dentist office and Five Points, mm-hmm. because when you're young, you have to show everywhere. Um, and they took it, I mean, they have a built-in audience. It's actually a pretty cool place, but you just hear dentist office first. So someone's like getting a crown next to your painting, which is kind of awesome. Mm-hmm. Um, and but they have dedicated galleries they do it's yes. a, i mean it's it's a pretty nice space. oh yeah. yeah it's really nice yeah um and um so i took these paintings there and they were you know working in these different temperatures and really pushed my color in a lot of different directions and then post sort of a drawing and painting era i started going back into more mixed media work um and now i'm very I'm back to being very heavily mixed media, somewhat obsessively. Um, but those things have those sort of two breaks from mixed media, um, followed me. So I do a lot of drawing in my work now, um, on top of mixed media collage kind of work. And then I, my color range is like friggin' highlighter yellows and, mm-hmm. um, you know, crazy colors, um, which I really love because I'm using a lot of images from like Library of Congress, um, a lot of open domain historical images. And those colors really pop with those fun historical images. So, so talk a little bit about that. I know, um, you know, I've seen that in your work, like um, uh, things like maps, things like portraits, other things. Talk about w- what, where you pull those, what, what, they, what sort of significance they have for you. Yeah, um, so if you've never been on the Library of Congress website, it's an amazing treasure trove of things. Um, I mostly search, um, you know, images, photos, prints, whatever. Um, Also, they have great audio files um, of crazy sounds. Um, And so I I tend to be thinking of something, a particular um, idea I want to explore in a piece, and I'll start searching words around that. And then I look through all of these photos and sometimes I find what I want, um, but sometimes these historical images don't necessarily have the terminology that you'd think to search them under today. Um, so I'll find a lot of other things that are aesthetically interesting and I'll just save them. Um, I'll, I'll download them and save them to my computer, um, which eats up a ton of storage space because they're giant files. Um, and then um, eventually I'll get I'll either get the image that I want that sort of pushes the the original idea I had further, or I'll find something else that sort of uh, changes the idea and um, makes it evolve in a different way. Um, and sometimes it really does cause ideas to go to the back burner. It causes new ideas to take over. Um, so for my most recent body of work, um, I really had an overall idea I wanted to explore. And then I just started looking through images and the images I started out with when I first started researching the show are not the images I ended up with in in the end, but the idea was only really strengthened by looking through and finding all these new images and digitally collaging them, printing them out and then transferring them and then collaging over top of them. So this was the show at Flanders? Yeah. And what was that initial idea? What was the driver? Um, so a lot of my work, um, since I've gone back to mixed media collage has been, um, information and how much information swirls around us through things like crazy ass podcasts, um, (laughs) and Google and the internet and the radio. And I mean, there's just, I mean, in your day to day, there are very few times, unless you're intentional about it, that you're not around this sort of 
swarm swarm of uh i just said that really funny um of information um and so i i've been thinking about how we get this information how we take it in how we change the context of it how we regurgitate it and how you know the the new context we put it in changes things um and so when kelly and i kelly mcchesney the director of flanders sat down together to talk about the show um I was thinking about the primary season um, and that information only seems to increase during primary seasons, which we're, we're done with primaries now and it's really only increasing as we go into the general election. Um, at the time, I mean, this was, you know, last fall, I guess, and last summer, I had no idea what crazy shit would go down during the primary <laughs> season. So, the idea was only strengthened by the the crazy people who decided that they would love to be president. Um, and so I started with that idea, the idea of all this information that we get during the primary season and how the bulk of information, the, the massive amount of it actually hinders us. It doesn't make us more informed. It makes us more confused. It makes us more dogmatic because we can decide we only want to listen to or watch or read this particular type of information. So I, I you know, maybe you only look at conservative media mm -hmm. and it just helps you to dig your heels in while, you know, your uncle is looking at MSNBC. And so <laughs> you're not compromising. You're only digging yourselves in further. And then this primary season hit and that became super true. I mean, um, all the people that ran from the Republican side, you know, half of which no one remembers anymore because there was just so many of them. They're all putting out information. You know, Donald Trump is still putting out information um, and they're all doing it in different ways. Um, you know, then you had Bernie and Hillary and poor Martin O'Malley that didn't really make it very far. Um, and all of this information is coming out. All of it's changing daily. It's being updated. And, so I, that idea was strengthened by that, but it also, I decided not to, there's no, in that body of work, there's no imagery of Donald Trump or Hillary Clinton or Bernie Sanders. It, it was just about the information. It wasn't partisan in any way. The, the finished work wasn't. It was just about how we're getting that information and then how we use that information to vote. Touche. <laughs> <laughs> Don't You Lie to Me is funded in part by the Visual Art Exchange's Lighter Fluid Award. If you aren't familiar with those fine people, you should check out their website for more information about their exhibitions, artist benefits, and special programming. Their website is visualartexchange.org. We also want to thank, of course, Matt McMichaels for the use of his studio, Trusty Woods, his equipment, and his patience. The theme song was composed by our own Warren Hicks, and the logo design was by Artsy Martha. Thank you for listening, and please tell your friends to listen as well. If you'd like to find out more, please go to our website, which is don'tyoulietome.com, and you can find links to the guests we have, images of their artwork, and you can also follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Our Twitter feed is at DYLTMNC. Thank you. <laughs>